raise a family, that they have some of the same opportunities that me and my wife. You agreed that they are, we need to see them as a terrorist organization. On a private cloud server, yes or no? To love country, to love God, and to try to do the right thing. Worked for the nation and the interests of the people. Welcome back to the Fresh Freedom Podcast. As you know, this is a podcast with the freedom-loving freshman members of the House of Representatives, where we provide you a behind-the-scenes look at what's happening in Congress. I'm joined by my fellow conservative freshman member of Congress, Josh Burkeen of Oklahoma. And with us today as a special guest is Warren Davidson. You know, before Congress, Warren was in the 75th Ranger Regiment, Special Operations Forces. He was stationed in Germany, and he witnessed when the Berlin Wall fell. Welcome, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you guys for the invite. Nice to hang out with y'all. I didn't know that. Like, you know, to be in Freedom Caucus with you and not know that you were there during the uh, Berlin Wall coming down. That's really I look neat. way younger, don't I? Wow. <laughs> you, you, how much of the wall do you have? Oh, I got a couple chunks. I mean, you know, probably my biggest chunks about like that, and then I got a couple smaller ones, and then I gave a lot of them away. Yeah. Did you? Were you there when Reagan made the famous speech? No. So, so um, in, in 1984, Reagan won re-election, won 49 out of 50 states, right? Okay. And he went on a train tour up through Ohio. I was 14 then, and I graduated high school in 88. So 88 was, you know, I graduated high school, and then uh, that fall I could uh, vote in the presidential election. So 89 um, was when H.W. Bush took, pres took, took office as president. So I you know, enlisted in the Army after high school, but I didn't get over to Germany until uh, George H.W. Bush had become president. Okay. But you know, when I went over there, you know, they, we had live ammo on our vehicles. We you know, prepared to roll out and meet the Soviets. And uh, let's just say you know, I got to go see the wall like people that were experiencing their first hours of freedom uh, after it came down. And uh, they were not asking for more government, right? They were looking for more freedom. So, you know, mm -hmm. same sort of thing the Freedom Caucus is all about, defending freedom. Those guys literally, Mr. Gorbachev didn't tear down the wall to Reagan's famous line. Uh, we didn't tear down the wall. Frankly, the East German people finally tore their own wall down because they found out the truth. And, you know, just a flashback to that, this guy asked me, I mean, he could speak some English, I could speak some German, and he's like, is it like this everywhere? And we were in Berlin, so I'm like from Western Ohio, small town, Western Ohio. And I was like, no, you know, we get small towns and everything, not everything's big city like this. And he goes, no, no, the stores are open at night and they have fresh milk. I'm like, yeah, I'm like trying to explain like a 7-Eleven to him or something. And he goes, no, like everyone can go into the stores and and the shelves are stocked and like everyone can go in and buy things. And I go, yeah, they want everyone to go in and buy more things so they sell more stuff. You know, he, he, <laughs> and they stay you know, open. Because <laughs> he had only experienced like the party bosses and the officials got to go get the good stuff. And then yeah. if they take it, then it's gone. He wow. didn't understand, well, how do they get more stuff in? He had no idea, but he was mind blown because he knew like his whole lifetime up to that point, he had been lied to. I mean, he's just obvious that it was like, wow, the, everything that they told me it. was a total lie. So he's over there just totally mind blown and, you know, a couple people with him as well. Um, but, yeah, that was definitely, you know, something when you look at the Cold War, and a lot of people, young people these days don't really know. They never lived when we had the Soviet Union. It's just a period of history, and it's hard to believe, you know, I'm, I'm you know, in my 50s now and, and, and lived that. But, um, you know, when Reagan said freedom's never more than one generation away from extinction— you look at that moment when it was crystal clear, those people were not looking for more government. They wanted more freedom. Now you look at, we've got colleagues who identify themselves as socialists, democratic socialists, but yeah. they want a socialist style government. Crazy. It is crazy. So your background going from the military to here, what was the transition? 
Well, so I got out of the Army uh, in, in large part because we didn't know what we were going to do after the Cold War. So I was in Ranger Regiment when Al-Qaeda did their first missions. They blew up America's embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. We thought we were going to go do something about that. Bill Clinton decided we weren't. I go from there, make, get promoted to captain and go to the 101st Airborne Division. And, um, you know, when I got there, you know, they just, there's just such, such a difference between what was supposed to be the most combat-ready active duty unit in the infantry with 101st Airborne Division and what we were able to do in the Ranger Regiment. And when I looked up at the foreign policy that we had uh, as a country, we, we didn't really have like a clear vision of what we were going to do after the Cold War ended. And in a lot of ways, we still don't. Um, and, you know, we had this period in the war on terror, but that drug on for a long time without the kind of focus we needed. So definitely, uh, you know, for me, we just didn't know what to do with all the power that we had achieved at the, but I had no idea what I would do. I mean, I thought I'd be a retired military guy. And so I got out and ultimately got into manufacturing, started my own company, went to Notre Dame for business school and had built a group of small manufacturing companies. Uh, when John Boehner resigned as speaker, he was my member of Congress. Now, these are small companies. What I know about you, you, you had a sizable company. And doing what? What was your company doing? Well, we had a couple small companies together, but combined they had about 240 people. What were you doing? What were you manufacturing? Uh, we had two metal stamping companies, an injection molding company, and a tooling business. How did you get into that? How did you? My dad had a tool and die shop, really a, a job shop, just a, and they made robot bases. That was their biggest business. And then they had gotten a production job. So they had really two metal stamping presses that stayed booked, and they had two other presses. One was kind of a tryout press for metal stamping dies. And so this is going past people that don't know this industry very well. But, um, you know, he had you know, 20-some employees when I first got out of the Army. And, um, you know, I was going to go work for a bigger company. And when I first got out, he's like, well, you know, if you're going to get out anyway, why don't you come work with me? And I was like, ah, you know, I don't know, Dad, family business. And, you know, this company is a Fortune 500 company, and they're offering me this much money. I don't know that you can pay that. He goes, I definitely can't pay that. And he goes, but, you know, here's what we're up against. You should at least take a look because he started the business when I was a senior in high school, so we didn't grow up around it. He was a shop foreman for, like, another tool and die shop. Okay. And so I hadn't been around it, really. So I went through and toured it, and this is a real quote. The guy that was running the shop floor at the time, he goes, this was, like, Good Friday of 2000. He goes, quote, I think all them computers are a fad. And that was, <laughs> I was, yeah, that was, I was kind of looking at him, and I was like, wait, wait. I was like, you mean, like, the dot-com bubble? Because that was in 1999, like, the year right, before. Right. So a bit of history for folks out there. And I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt, and he goes, no, all them computers and stuff. And I'm looking at him like, you mean like desktop computers? <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> he goes, yeah, and them CNCs too, which is a computer-controlled machining center. And I was like, oh, okay. And, yeah. and I think that was really decisive when I decided to go work with my dad. And I was like, well, you know, I don't truly know that I'll even like business. Why not try to help my dad for a year or so? So I worked with them directly for a year, two years, and then two years in, I started my own company and then went to business school. And you replaced John Boehner. So that, that must have been something, replacing the, the well, former speaker. Well, thankfully, I didn't replace the speaker. Uh, Mike Johnson's living that torment right now. Uh, you know, Paul Ryan lived that torment. Uh, we've had three people as Republicans live that torment. I just got the good job, which is the member of Congress, you know, and... Jim um, Jordan... Came to you and said, "Yeah, I mean, he was he was at the time trying to build what became the Freedom Fund." Jim Jordan's from Ohio. Jim lives like half hour away from me, and he was raising money for the Freedom Fund. He stopped into my office. The, the initial startup of Freedom Caucus had just began with yep. Mark Meadows, and 
Yeah. So Bridenstine from from Oklahoma. Keep going. Yeah. So that's you got it. And and right then he's he's asking me to, you know, cut a check and raise money for the for the cause. And I'm like, I love the idea. Count me in. And he goes, Well, hey, who are you going to back to replace Boehner? And I'm like, oh, You're Jim Jordan. Who are you going to back? You know, I'll probably be behind whoever you back. And uh, and isn't that kind of the point of this fund anyway? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you know, it'd be great if there was an Army Ranger business guy in the race. And we just laughed. And I think really he's just buttering me up to get me to write a bigger check or something. And I went home and told my wife about my day. And uh, I thought she would laugh. And she goes, well, what'd you tell him? I said, we laughed because it's crazy. And she goes, no, it's not. You'd be great at that. You should call him back. And I was like, uh, let's go over the crazy. But obviously, ultimately, we got in. And when I got wow. in, I mean, like... I did. You couldn't have been more politically green than me in the winter race. I mean, my the uh, young lady did the marketing for me in my business. She had an outside business. I said, "What do you think?" And she's like, "Well, I never even worked on a political campaign, and I'm a libertarian, not a Republican, but uh, it's like launching a product." I said, "Okay, right. let's look at it like we're launching a product. Everybody needs to know about it and hopefully like it. How much money will that take? You do your study. I'll do mine. We'll compare notes." And so we compared notes. It kind of made sense. We prayed a lot about it, came up with a game plan, and, um, you know, did it, did it like a product launch. And I used to tell the story to my uh, uh, friends and supporters, you know, when we prayed about it, we felt like this is what we really should do. And uh, it felt like, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, you know you're supposed to get in the furnace, but you don't know whether you're going to come out. <laughs> right, right. And so when I first won, I thought, we made it out of the furnace. And now that I've been here, I'm like, you know, I might still be in the furnace. Yeah. You know, it's pretty rough. <laughs> Well, to jump into that, like you're known within the conference as one of the intellectuals, somebody that to look to on, you know, as a subject matter expert on, on a number of issues. And so I don't, we could dive into some of those. But one of them, I immediately, the first time I ever met you or saw you, I was, I was attending a conference, I think it was Club for Growth, and you were speaking about digital currency at that time. And you blew my mind how how in-depth and that you, because I, I understand Bitcoin, I understand blockchain. I have, I've actually wrote software for, um, uh, for you know, Ethereum, but uh, to be able to transact Ethereum. Mm -hmm. But you, you spoke with such authority, it, it impressed me. Well, thanks. I can't write code for much of anything. Uh, there was one course I took in college, well, a couple, but that was one and chemistry that I said, there, I'd never want to take another minute of this. And one was writing code. So when they say learn to code, I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that. So much respect for that. It's definitely a niche. But um, central bank digital currency is that. It's programmable money. And look, for, for Christian friends and viewers, you know, we get it. Revelation talks about money being corrupted uh, from its proper use as a store of value and a means of, pay, of exchange to uh, a tool for coercion and control. And um, yeah. for the Lord of the Rings fan, I've compared this to, uh, you know, one ring to rule them all because it is the power of total coercion. You, you literally stand between anyone in their property. You know, if it's a yeah. central bank, it's not just a bank, which is, frankly, once you put your money in a bank, you just have a claim to your money. It's no longer truly yours. They carry it as assets on their balance right. sheet. Uh, but when the government has it, truly the government serves as the filter uh, directly between you and your net worth, you know. So, uh, if you want to spend money, you could see how it would be abused because, in a central bank digital currency, if it's centrally managed, centrally controlled central bank digital currency, which is what China's doing, 
um, then they can see every transaction and then they can build and program filters around that. And that's exactly what China's doing. But here's the scary thing. There are over 100 countries around the world that are working on some form of central bank digital currency, including ours. In fact, the Federal Reserve is actively hiring people to write code uh, to research central bank digital currency. They oh, say, wow. now, when I say write code, I'm like, that sounds like you're not researching anymore. It sounds like you're building. You're writing, yeah. And when I think about building, I think about evil. I think about the evil uh, uh, in the in, in Star Wars, another movie analogy. Yeah, they're building the Death Star. If you, yeah, <laughs> well, we're, we're going to let them build the Death Star as long as they promise not to turn it on. And right. let's not forget, the Death Star was only a demonstration case where they blew up the planet, right? Right. Because then you know you got this power. I mean, it is scary like that to me because then the central government truly stands between you and your ability to spend money for any cause. They can put terms and conditions on it. Like, well, you know, you said critical things of Xi Jinping. So you get a lower social credit score. Um, you can buy train tickets because you said... Uh, you know, only these things, but you, you've been supportive. You can go, you know, all yeah, over. You You're free to roam about the country. Um, you know, and you look where it could go. You, you've used up your, your gasoline allocation, you know, or say, for example, you've got an F-350, you know, gas for use, $20 a gallon, and you've got a Prius or, you know, an electric vehicle, and boy, you know, you got a great set of social credit scores. Yeah. That's the way it could be abused. And every country's running this kind of aversion. You know, the government has always figured out numerous ways to screw people out of their money. And this actually, this creates an innumerable number of what more ways than, than anyone has ever conceived. Yeah. Well, it, only in sci-fi, right? I mean, it, and scripture. We look at Revelation, I think the three of us is scripture and, and a lot of a lot of the viewers of y'all's podcast. But if if you look at um, Every dystopian fiction, 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 411, there's always this corruption of money, and it's always depicted as evil. The question is, why would we tolerate our government doing this with our money? And they say, oh, well, we would have to go to Congress to get permission to establish it. But on the back end, they are establishing it, and they will now clarify, well, a retail CBDC. So for the retail, for so what they're building out is with the biggest banks, only the biggest banks, um, they're building out kind of this back-end architecture where they can settle amongst, uh, you know, business clients and, frankly, anybody but an individual consumer. They're actively building it. And that's what they say is research. Um, but I, I do believe it is a, a complete abuse of the authority. And this is one of the problems with the way the Federal Reserve structured. They're not on appropriations. Um, you know, the Treasury is, and they have to cooperate. So, We've got in the language that passed the House Appropriations Bill this year um, a prohibition against designing, um, developing, or establishing a central bank digital currency. So unless they nail it up front, they couldn't redesign anything. They couldn't use any of the money. But the problem is that doesn't necessarily affect you know, what the Federal Reserve does. So we really need to, I, in my view, criminalize any of this kind of work on a central bank digital currency uh, because to me, it is that dystopian. I mean, it is that kind of a threat. Uh, to me, I think the corruption of our money system is an existential threat to Western civilization. So you're on financial services, yes, which is the proper committee for any pushback on this. From some minimal um, understanding of the makeup of that committee, chairmanship on down, pretty safe to say, even um, among Republicans, there's a heavy amount of skepticism and pushback against the Biden administration's design, the Federal Reserve's design to do this research. 
Um, I think Republicans, and maybe I'm overspeaking um, in excess of what the reality is, but I see that on the Republican conference, there's a lot of solidarity wanting to push back against us. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And in our committee, we passed a bill, uh, you know, the whip, uh, Tom Emmers uh, led the bill. A lot of us had input. We had variations on several bills. And uh, Tom Emmers became the lead bill. And it's an anti-central bank digital currency piece of legislation, not just a hook on appropriations, but a pure uh, appropriations, oh, a, pool, a, a full authorizing and committee. And this is Tom Emmer's bill. Yeah, Tom Emmer's bill. It's a great bill. And it passed our committee. Um, not unanimously, though. All the Republicans were for it. And I think we had five or six Democrats uh, who, who came out for the bill in committee. And if you look, the block of opposition is coming from Senator Elizabeth Warren in the Senate. Senator Sher Brown, the head of the Senate Banking Committee, is backing Elizabeth Warren. Mm. Uh, Schumer doesn't really know what's going on. Um, but the good news is they're not actively moving pro stuff in the Senate, but Elizabeth Warren is running kind of a lot of the staffing and personnel. So anybody that needs uh, appointed and Senate confirmed in the financial services space basically has to get Elizabeth Warren's blessing to be able to make it through the Senate confirmation process. And she's had a grip on this and she is pro central bank digital currency. So the administration has taken that position. Uh, so the anti-CBDC legislation that we've got doesn't have a, a clear legislative path. Yeah, at this time. Yeah. You know, all the way to the finish line at this so time. Republicans take the Senate, Republican White House. What do you think happens? Do you think this becomes a priority? Well, I, cer I certainly hope so. I will say that, uh, you know, Secretary Mnuchin wasn't very good on this issue. Some of the work that was underway was underway when Secretary Mnuchin was Secretary of the Treasury. So I would hate to see him become Secretary of Treasury again. Uh, we need somebody who's super strong on this. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of good, strong people on the issue. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin wasn't. I won't know that President Trump spent a lot of energy on it, frankly. But, um, but, you know, the hope is that President Trump or, you know, DeSantis has been very strong in this in the unlikely probability that, uh, De that the President Trump isn't our nominee. Let's say DeSantis was. He banned CBDC in the state of Florida. So I think on a lot of policy grounds, you just look at what Florida has done. Yeah, we should pretty much just do that and we'd be in good shape in a lot of federal And the Amber Bill is a prohibition to stop it before it could ever get started. That's that's the real... Well, to stop key. it in terms of what it's been done so far, yeah. It's, and it doesn't quite go as far as what we could do in, in terms of the Federal Reserve, um, but it goes as far as we could pass okay. and get bipartisan support. You know, what I find that's a real value of, that you have is that whenever we have conference meetings and whenever there's an opportunity for members to go to the microphones, for those viewers, we're, we're imagine a room in the basement of the Capitol where there's 220 Republicans, you, actually usually 190 because most some of them don't show up. But they're, we're all sitting in this room with leadership in front. And when leadership is done bloviating, then, then they give opportunities for members to come to the microphone. And at that moment, it becomes like a battle of wills. It becomes oftentimes, sometimes there's a contentious issue. And um, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on how do you navigate, you know, testing the temperature of the room. Because I think it's an art where you, where you feel the temperature room and you, you know the right words to say to, to the audience. Well, I'm still trying to figure that out. So if you guys figure it out, <laughs> let me know. I think what he's saying, I've witnessed it. I've watched you do that a lot. I thought, I thought you'd been very artful in the way that you um, are able to uh, jump the shark in a way that uh, before the shark knows that he's getting jumped. Well, sometimes, sometimes uh, you know, I think it's gone well. And sometimes you just get so energized, like I, I, like earlier tonight, I, I couldn't even see straight because one of our colleagues was saying things that were 
you know, frankly, on Adam Schiff level of mischaracterization of the truth. You know, which is polite as all. That's, that's, that's a pretty high level. <laughs> which is like, oh man, you're not honestly representing what's going on in this debate about FISA. Um, and so I think other times maybe I've been more effective, but I do think it's important uh, to speak out sometimes and not necessarily always. Yeah. Uh, because if you're the, always the person at the mic, then people kind of tune out the people that always go. Don't go to your neighbor's house too often lest he grow tired of you. Scripture, this man knows it. Yeah, I mean, what's the, that, that's that thought, right? You yeah. just, you've got to, you got to know when to hold them and know when to yeah, fold them. Yeah, there's scripture that was King <laughs> There's certain members that when they go to the microphone, you can see the entire room check out because they yeah. because they go to the microphone every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's part of the the balance, and you know we hope to get it right. And then you know just the agenda. Sometimes you're like, well, this issue is the highest show I've worked on. This issue, you might be like. In a, in a two or three month period where you end up with a lot of time at the mic and then over the next six months, you're like, I hadn't even been to the mic. You know, so it kind of depends. We've had a lot of those over the past, uh, since September with everything, uh, a, lot, a lot of times where everybody's spent a fair bit of time talking. We've worked through a lot as a conference. Hopefully we're in a strong enough place so that in the year ahead, we actually play a little better offense. So for those that, um, for the viewers, um, it's been, you've been described as, um, as a Frodo, or no, sorry, <laughs> Samwise to Frodo Baggins, right? That, oh. uh, are we in the speakers? Right? Are we in the speakers? Oh, like, I got you. Come yeah. in your speakers, like Jim Jordan. Oh, yeah. So, Scott to then your role. So, yeah. so you had that role. You have Jim Jordan, who's who was, you know, at the... Who, the guy who, trying to be the ring bearer. Right, he's the guy trying to be... Try, he's carrying the weight of the world, trying to find a way to bridge the... Bridge the gap. Real factions within our conference. Jim's right? running for speaker. It was you were you were trying to help him get there. And to, Jim asked me to help him. Yep. And you know Jim's uh, not just one of my best friends in Congress. He's one of my best friends. You know, and I mean, I shared earlier how I even got into this mess. And so um, he, he's Meshach. He brought you into the fire. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, well, that, so, that, so that has to be eye opening to be in the internal structure yeah. of a speaker fight. I learned a ton in that, and um, you know, you build relationships across the conference. Some of them improve, some of them get worse, but it was definitely a fight, and it was disappointing to see, uh, you know, Jim not be able to get the votes, and then to really look at the layers. You know, I always tell people this place is like an onion. You know, there there's the superficial layer that I think everybody back home gets, which is, you know, this is way too much like junior high. Everyone cares which lunch table they sit at. It's all petty, and it's like student yeah. council elections back in ninth grade or something. Yeah, and yeah, there's some Not of that. There's some of that level. Thankfully, there's a few more layers to the onion. And you know, uh, I've been at this what seven and a half years now, and I'm still peeling it back layers. And so, as you look at some of these things, obviously it's broken. I mean, that's why we ran all the people in Freedom Caucus. They didn't come here to be here. They came here to change here. That's right. And um, and so. Um, you know, seven and a half years in, you, you know, you know that it's broken when you came. And, you know, with this much time here, it's just broken a little differently than I think people see. And I think that's part of the benefit of experience. But, you know, you get the young bucks come in, they get all the energy and they don't always listen to the old bulls. And uh, I guess I'm get at seven and a half years, I'm beyond the mean, you know, the average is the average in the place is only about six years. Now, people like Nancy Pelosi skew that average by a lot. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but yeah, the average is, when I first, I was, wow, the average is like six years? So think how bad some of these long-term people skew that average. Well, but if we, if, if the freshmen like us didn't have somebody 
to to you know look up to 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 watch how would we how would we um, become effective right uh, you, guys, you guys are all smart experienced guys and I mean I think the energy that comes in is great um, it's just sometimes it's been like oh wait, 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 let's think through this because there's a couple layers there that aren't entirely intuitive and I found out a few extra of those during that speaker fight I guess that's my point in that mm -hmm. you, you just kind of get in the room and you're like oh okay I see what's here and you know frankly a lot of that ultimately really was, although it had superficial layers that were meaningful and different, um, a lot of the fight for speaker was still just a proxy war between Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise. It was. Yeah. I think, and people didn't realize that until it was over. There are people that even now don't even concede that, and it's like, uh, you still don't get that? Yeah. But I think at this point, virtually everybody in the conference is like, yeah, man, those guys could have just locked themselves in a room and saved us a lot of heartache. Mm. Right. <laughs> It was, it was brutal. Because they both had a big enough block to kind of shank the other candidate, right? And that, 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 that kind of continued. But it was sort of almost, you know, it was pretty impressive how, like, once we kind of got to Mike Johnson, everybody just kind of almost supernaturally, you know, kind of yeah. got mellowed out and like, oh. Yeah. All the bitterness and anger and previous yeah. fights, everybody just kind of mellowed out. And go, well, I could yeah. go with Mike. So you remember what? live with Mike. So you were running point for Jim. Do you remember what I told you when you called me to say, can you support Jim? I told you, do you remember the term I used, East of Jordan? Do you remember me yeah, telling you that? Yeah. Because I'd been on the plane, and I was praying when we got back, and I think it's like First Kings 5, like I just it just jumped off the page to me, East of Jordan. So when Jim calls me, I'm, and you, you, I'd already told you that, I'm like, look, I'm praying this thing through, but, and Jim was like, well, you know Louisiana's not East of Ohio, right? <laughs> I'm like, look, I, just give me some time to pray about this. I said, this thing just leapt off the page, and I read that East of Jordan. I went back and looked in my Bible about that. You know what the word east is a, trans is a translation for? The word before. And so when this thing was all over with, when I went back and I looked, I had a friend of mine, Terry Allen. He said, well, where's Johnson relative to Jordan in the, in the role? He's just before. Oh, yeah. Johnson. Oh, right. that's pretty wild. So you hear me telling you? I don't know about that stuff. I, hey, I'm <laughs> telling you. I, I told Jim. I told, I told <laughs> Warren. I, I'm one to, of those people that you can see anything if you look in the clouds enough, right? Oh, you can, man, I, Job 33, 14, <laughs> for God speaks one way yet another, yet man may not perceive it. Did I not tell you that when you called me? Th those are words you said. East of Jordan. And my buddy, I, didn't, I wasn't smart to figure it out. But when you go back and look, east in the Greek, or, the, or not wouldn't be the Greek, it would be the Hebrew. It actually means before. And so on the roll call, it's right there before Jordan. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't see that until afterwards. So tell us quickly about your family. Like when we go back home, hopefully at the end of this week, what, where, how are you going to spend your downtime? Well, I got a 26 year old girl and a 24 year old boy. We just have two kids, you know, um, and you know, been married 28 years. So uh, met my wife Lisa. Uh, when she was on a mission trip in Ohio, you know, there's a lot of heathens in Ohio. She had to reach us. <laughs> she, was, you know, she was helping. <laughs> she was evangelizing the Well, she was, she was actually setting up uh, backyard Bible clubs and vacation Bible schools for small churches. And then my mom wanted me to go to her church. I wasn't a big fan of her church. Uh, she's like, well, we got a new pastor and everything. And we go there, and sure enough, I'm like, get, get in there, and uh, there's this pretty girl up there on the uh, you know, by the pulpit organizing some stuff and everything, kind of getting ready for something. I'm like, Mom. Who's that? She goes, I don't know. I said, is that like the new pastor's daughter? So no, no, no. I well, she sang special music. She sang a great song, People Need the Lord. And oh, she's yeah, just yeah. smiling, beaming and everything. I was like, man. And uh, at the end, I got to walk past and shake her hand and say, hey, thanks for singing. And I thought, you know, not a bad day. Met a pretty girl. 
And uh, well, you're you like, Mom, I want to go back to your church. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was leaving for West Point right after that. Oh, so wow. um, I thought, like, we had a couple other interactions, and I thought I had read, okay, well, I'm going to ask this girl out. And she's like, oh, I can't date. I'm on a mission trip. And I go, man, I totally read that wrong. And she goes, no, no, seriously, I can't. I would, you know, I'm not going to cross my rules. But, uh, you know, we're doing this in groups. And, you know, supernaturally, I felt led to help out with Vacation Bible School. <laughs> so, there, there I was with those kids, and uh, you know, so I, I helped out with that, and then we started actually dating formally. And uh, but I had to leave, and and uh, after I left, we wrote letters, and this was pre cell phone days, so I would wait in line for a payphone. She'd wait at home. I'd call her on like a weekend or a Friday night or something, and then we'd have a little phone. Then we could have like real dates. She came out and lived at West Point my sophomore year. And we got engaged after that. You can't be married at West Point. So we got married about a month after You graduation. cannot be married at West Point. No. Wow, I didn't know that. Nope. So we got married about a month after I graduated. And <laughs> been married 28 years, but we dated dated the whole the whole way through West yeah. Point. Well, congratulations. Yeah, pretty cool. So how about you guys? You guys already told these stories to these yeah, folks? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got two teenage daughters, so any advice is always helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's been trying. <laughs> Well, the, you know, the mother-daughter dynamic is, uh, I, you know, that's always, they're the best of friends. And then they're like, especially in those 13, 14, uh, those stretch of years, four or five years. And it, it all does mellow out eventually. And the, the boy, uh, you know, he was like the sweetest little mama's boy until he got like all the hormones running through him about 14. And then uh, he's back mostly on track now. So he's, he's, you know, he's kind of gets... I'm, I'm right there. I've got the 17-year-old, about to turn 18-year-old daughter and the, the 13, just turned 13-year-old. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Plus, yeah. I've got an addition. I've got a two-year-old who's homesick right now. With, with uh, some, so well, good for you. That's pretty cool that you get a, a little bit of a spread, but you got a, another young one. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're pretty awesome. Um, so, yeah, spend time with family and, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, we still aren't even gelling up our plans because... Uh, my son out in Colorado can't travel last year because he couldn't travel, uh, you know, due to work. We, we ended up doing Christmas out there. We haven't yet decided whether we're going to do that or do something else. That's, that's how. No, there's worse simper, places to do Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe do some snow skiing. And I tried that once and uh, <laughs> I, I determined that was not for me. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah. And thank you for being such a conservative uh, someone who's an influence on the conservative movement, especially within con Congress. Um, thank you for the fight that you bring here. Yeah. We really appreciate Indeed you. More. Yeah, thank you guys. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, and before we let before we let you go, if people want to follow you, how do they? Where do they go? Yeah, on Twitter at Warren Davidson, and then our official webpage is Davidson.house.gov. Awesome. Well, give Warren a like, and if you like the show and the conversation, be sure and like and subscribe and share it. The Fresh Freedom Podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Rumble. Make sure that you're subscribed. Until next time, we'll see you on the Fresh Freedom Podcast. <laughs>